Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Tyamba Jess is a poet and a Detroit native whose work vividly and rhythmically captures some of the messier spaces of the human condition and things like pain and loss and joy. He's in town for the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea this weekend and is going to join us to talk about his work, about poetry, and about growing up here in Detroit. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and... I'm glad you've decided to join us. Over the last decade, we've had really far-reaching and different kinds of conversations about mental health in this country, and especially here in Michigan. We now talk about it in the context of our schools and our kids. We talk about it as it relates to things like gun violence And we explore the issue around the ideas of loneliness and isolation that many Americans feel that can grow into the area of mental illness. Well, mental health came up again when it was recently announced that the state of Michigan is going to construct a new $325 million psychiatric hospital in Northville on the grounds of an older psychiatric facility that it is meant to replace. A little later in the program, we're going to explore a different political era, that of the Civil War up until World War I, with Detroit native and Pulitzer Prize winning poet Tyemba Jess. He explores different times in American history when the term mental health didn't carry the kind of weight it does today. He's also going to be at the Midwest Literary Walk in Chelsea this weekend. I'm really excited to have a conversation with him. He is one of my favorite poets. But right now, we want to explore this new psychiatric facility. Why is the state building it now? What other mental health-related policies are getting priority here in Michigan? And how are our politics around mental health actually changing and maybe changing for the better? To talk about all this, we've got Detroit News reporter Beth LeBlanc with us. She has been covering the creation of this new facility. Beth, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk about why the state is constructing this psychiatric facility now and how significant it is that the state is is actually building uh, a new psychiatric hospital. Yeah, so this is this is definitely a big deal. The state from from all um, indications is is really in in need of new structures. Um, the, the ones that this will be replacing in Northville is the Hawthorne Center, which is an adolescent psychiatric facility, um, which opened in 1956, and the, the Walter P. Ruther Psychiatric Hospital, which opened in 1979 in Westland. So this new facility on Haggerty Road in Northville 
it will replace both of those. And this is significant because the state only has five inpatient hospitals at this point for, for psychiatric needs. So these, these are going to become a significant um, facility in southeast Michigan for psychiatric health. Yeah. Um, what are the aims of this particular hospital? What gaps, I guess, is it filling in the mental health system? And I ask that in the context, of course, of the dramatic dismantling of much of our public mental health system back in the 1990s and the discussions that have kind of cropped up since then about what alternatives might look like and whether the state should be more involved in mental health than former Governor John Engler believed that it should. How does this hospital fit into that picture? You know, I think this construction in particular kind of keeps the status quo at this point. Um, That's not to say there aren't plans in the future to to expand further, but this was an immediate infrastructure need from what we can tell. And these buildings that that this is replacing just couldn't be upkept anymore with the infrastructure that they had. But it's, it's worth noting that this facility that they're building, it will house 260 people. Um, whereas the old facility was 200. So it's a a marginal increase in terms of capacity. Um, You know, overall, the state between those five facilities, they they only have about 650 patients. But I think, you know, there's there's always that conversation after some of the structure was dismantled under Angler about whether that's enough room, what other kind of services the state should be providing, either inpatient or outpatient. And that's, that's an ongoing conversation in the legislature. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little more about the hospital itself. It's going to be run by the state, is that right? And and the people who will be treated there, uh, is it inpatient? Is it a combination of inpatient and outpatient? What's, what's this all look like? So this is inpatient. And, and like I said, it's, it's replacing both a youth psychiatric facility and an adult psychiatric facility, both state-run Um, And this would kind of combine them into one location in Northville, but it would keep the youth and adults in two separate facilities, and they would just share, like, administration and food services at the end of the day. Um, So these will be state-run. They're, like I said, uh, part of a five-facility state-run system that's available right now. Um, and it will be just inpatient. I, I think there's a broader conversation about what other, you know, services can be offered outpatient and and also there's there's the consideration of what's going to happen during construction i mean so right now there are obviously people at the hawthorne center during Mm -hmm. construction which is expected to start in the fall they'll be moving those individuals over to walter p ruther in westland um, until this is completed in in 2026 so right now the state is going to definitely be juggling its space in terms of inpatient options for folks yeah. I'm talking with uh, Beth LeBlanc. She's a reporter for the Detroit News. We're talking about a story she wrote recently about the construction of a new $325 million psychiatric hospital in Northville on the grounds of the Hawthorne uh, mental health facility uh, that is uh, old and, and needs to be replaced. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. What do you make of the state investing this way uh, in a new psychiatric hospital in Northville? Do you think Michiganders need more institutions like this? Uh, do you think this is a good way 
to get a discussion started about further kinds of investments that the state might make into mental health. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, How else, Beth, do we see the state investing in mental health infrastructure uh, in this way? Is this the only example? Maybe is the state thinking about uh, other psychiatric hospitals that it might uh, construct or invest in? Well, it's it's definitely the case that there is a repeated plea for for either more inpatient facilities or more outpatient. You know, I know over the years, the legislature and committee hearings and, and in testimony in those committee hearings, they've heard from parents who said their, their child's waited at the hospital for days trying to get placement in a facility or um, trying to get the care that they need at that time. Um, and, and in the wake of the Oxford shooting in November 2021, there was there was a lot of targeted attention on especially mental health in schools, but the mental health system in general and, and how the state could better serve that those mental health needs, especially in the wake of the pandemic as well. That came up again and again. Um, and, and in these gun debates that are currently going on, you know, there, there have been um, folks opposed to the gun laws that are, are being implemented saying, no, what we really need is, is more mental health help. Um, and I think with the current makeup of the Democratic legislature, there's a sort of both and um, type philosophy where, mm-hmm. you know, we can do both. We can put these laws in place and we can also address mental health. Um, if, if they want to do that, I think now is the time, you know, they're working on the state budget. They're going to be, you know, making a plan as to how the state's billions of dollars are spent and how they prioritize mental health. And so that remains to be seen to see how they invest in it. I know after the Oxford shooting, there was a lot of money invested in, in supplemental budgets in, uh, in school psychiatrists and in, in school mental health resources. That was definitely a, a flush of cash that went towards that in 2021, 2022. But I think people are eager to see what kind of long-term uh, resources are available as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I also want to talk about something else that was in the news, uh, mental health-related. Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein is not going to be attending oral arguments next week because uh, he's seeking some short-term mental health treatment uh, out of the state. Uh, how do you see the nature of mental health and mental health in our politics changing? It's one of the things that we have, again, been talking about, uh, having a high-profile elected official very publicly say, look, I need, I need some time, I need some space and help, I'm going to go get it. Um, does that maybe shine a different a light, a brighter light uh, on on the need for these kinds of services in Michigan. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people responded to, to which, first off, I mean, Justice, Justice Bernstein's announcement earlier this week that he would be seeking mental health treatment. It It is a bit unusual because usually justices, um, you know, they, they, they aren't very public um, with a lot of their either their personal opinions or their their personal struggles or sure. what have you. So for that to be announced via a press release from the Michigan Supreme Court, it was um, it was definitely unique in terms of what we heard here from the court. I think it was greeted with a lot of um, gratitude, I think, from people on Twitter who said, you know, 
that that it was a boon to people who struggle with mental health issues to see that um, they could acknowledge it and get treatment for it, um, even when you're on the highest court in the state. Um, so that was some of the the response we heard from from that in particular. But yeah, I mean, I think you know it, it should be interesting. Just recently, the Supreme Court you know heard a case where where they were talking about getting more mental health treatment and options for for youth. So it's definitely a top of mind uh, issue. And it's one that uh, they appear to be addressing both professionally and, and personally in this case. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you in the conversation. Sarah in Gross Point, uh, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Uh, hi, thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate you taking my call. Um, mm-hmm. I am actually an outpatient mental health provider, mm-hmm. and um, one of the ways the state has not been doing a good job of investing is making mental health care at the uh, at the routine level accessible to people on Medicaid. Wow. Um, it, and, and so, uh, Sarah, give us a little more information about that. What does that look like, I guess, from your perspective? Well, so, for example, if you have a My Health Plan card, um, just, you know, what we would call straight up Medicaid, mm-hmm. you can't just go to any mental health care provider. You have to go to a CMH organization. Those tend to be harder to access, very, very, very understaffed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they tend to have a really high turnover rate of, un, you know, inexperienced providers. So you don't get good quality care. Yeah. If you have a Medicaid HMO plan, those are harder and harder to find care for as well, because as, as somebody who takes them, they keep dropping their reimbursement rates. And, I mean, there was recently a scandal where Meridian stopped paying their rates abruptly, dropped them down like $40 for, wow. for no real reason. Below our break-even point as mental health care providers, we had to stop taking it because we were losing, you know, basically losing money just to see... Trying to treat people, yeah. 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 Sarah, I'm really glad you called and... And uh, offered that perspective, uh, that that firsthand experience, I think, is really is is really vivid and and a vital part of the discussion. Uh, Beth LeBlanc, again, there are these gaps in in mental health, and I know that the your story and your reporting is about this hospital, but it, it does fit into this larger picture of these questions that people have about the state's commitment to this kind of care. Yeah, yeah, and I I think um, that case in particular, I mean, it speaks to to kind of the comp- complex nature of this. You know, we can talk about how much money is put into this, whether there's more money needed, whether there's um, what they can do with the, the upcoming budget. But there are also questions about, you know, yeah, how how do insurance providers reimburse these services? How how do we change that? How do we cover those gaps with with Medicare or Medicaid? Um, how do you get enough providers in the state? How do you make sure uh, the community mental health organizations around the state have enough providers to to serve everyone? So I think there are a lot of questions that that need to be answered on this, and and a lot of um, different avenues to address it. And and it is it is a complex issue, and um, I don't know that I've seen kind of the the broad approach yet um, that would address all of those different avenues that yeah. are in need at this point. Yeah, yeah. Again, Sarah, really appreciate the call and uh, the information you're able to share. 
with uh, with our listeners. Let's go next to Robin in Ann Arbor. Robin, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, hey. Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring up the point that when we talk about mental health, we often differentiate it from physical health. And I, I see mental health as health. And in that note, in that vein, um, when someone needs to check into an inpatient facility for a mental health problem, it's very difficult to convey that to coworkers or employ or uh, your employer. And, and it's very different than if, say, for example, you had a physical health crisis, people understand and they support you. But with a mental health crisis, there is that strong stigma of something is wrong with me and I will be judged by my coworkers and my employers. So yeah. that social and cultural aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Robin, uh, no question that that's one of the things uh, that plays into this. And, and as we were talking about earlier, having someone like Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein come out and say, hey, I, I, I need help with this, uh, is one of the things that that I think pushes this in a different direction and says, if you do need help, it's okay. And raise your hand and, and, and go do it. And uh, and don't feel ashamed that uh, that you need that kind of support. Uh, Robin, really appreciate the call and uh, and the comments. Let's go next to Dr. Curtis Long, someone who calls us from time to time from the Dickerson Detention Facility here in uh, Detroit. Uh, Dr. Long, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hey. Good morning. Uh-huh. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to hear that the state is going to reinvest in mental health. As I was listening to the uh, speaker, you know, it took me on a journey from my uh, training at um, uh, starting off at Lafayette Clinic, you know, watch that closer. And during the time, actually, I was doing my supervision at Northville, and I was also in the fellowship at Hawthorne Center. So, you know, as I sit here now, I'm about to walk into the detention facility, and as we all know, a lot of uh, individuals, particularly adolescents, uh, find themselves in a uh, juvenile facility or in a jail in terms of mental health. So on one hand, I'm, I'm happy to hear that uh, there's a reinvestment. Uh, and so my uh, bereavement of being there at Lafayette when the, the state police closed it, uh, I guess I can uh, move towards some resolution now. But uh, on the other hand, uh, a clinician called in and talking about uh, mental, uh, Medicaid and, mm-hmm. and Medicare. And that is a severe issue in terms of wanting to, I'll just put it like this, is very few of my uh, colleagues back from the uh, 80s who are doing private practice. And the primary reason is that you can't stay in business. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, Medicaid doesn't pay enough, uh, your office uh, overhead, et cetera. Uh, I try to work that out by having a nonprofit. So I still see individuals, uh, men and women and adults, and my nonprofit to kind of make up from where I'm working elsewhere. So if they can focus on that too, perhaps we wouldn't need as many inpatient mental health beds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Long, I, uh, again, always appreciate that you call and, and share your perspective uh, because it is uh, so important. And, and on this issue is really critical. The overlap between uh, the gaps in the mental health system and the criminal justice system uh, are, are, are really important and really significant to, uh, to the conversation. So, uh, again, appreciate, appreciate you calling in. Okay, Beth LeBlanc, uh, great to have you here on Detroit Today. What's the, what's the timeline on this new hospital? 
So they break ground in the fall, and then they're hoping to have it finished by 2026. So, um, in, and again, this will house 260 people, um, up about 60 people from, from what these facilities currently can house. But, you know, the, the state was careful to, to couch those numbers with the idea that it, they won't go past that $325 million budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of state agencies are saying that now because, um, because of the kind of the unpredictability of, of inflation at this point. So they're, they're hoping to get it under 325 million. They're hoping to house 260 people and they're hoping to have this done by 2026. Um, so that's, that's the timeline for completing this. And, and in the meantime, while they're working on that, they will have to be, you know, kind of juggling and moving folks around um, to accommodate the construction that's going on at, at the current site of the Hawthorne Center. Right. right. Okay, Beth LeBlanc, uh, great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to talk with Tyimba Jess, a Detroit native, Pulitzer Prize winning poet who's going to appear at the Midwest Literary Walk this weekend in Chelsea. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join us today. One of my favorite things about poetry is the way it opens up language and ideas, the way, as an art form, it can draw so strongly from other art forms to really shine and soar. The best poets, for me, blend the virtues of music and literature of rhythm and political ideology, of emotion and even journalism, and give you something that celebrates those things equally, but that itself ends up with no real equal. That's the reason I've been such a fan of Tyamba Jess for such a long time. He's someone who does a lot of interpreting and playing around with the messier spaces of the human condition. Uh, He thinks a lot about the complexity, the beauty and the tragedy and the struggle that Americans experienced in the past. He is a native Detroiter. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I'm proud to say he is also a graduate of the same high school that I attended, University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy. In Jess's book, Olio, he uses music, artistic symbols, and different characters to bring to life more fully what America was like around the Civil War era up until World War I. He is speaking this weekend at the Midwest Literary Walk, and I'm really great, really grateful to have him here with us to talk about what influences his work, how he got into poetry, and what he makes of the various ways that history bleeds into the present. Tyambajess, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Mr. Henderson, it's really, uh, really an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me into your studio. <laughs> yes. So uh, uh, a teacher we had in common at U of D High, Father Polakowski, Father Polo. Yes, Polakowski. Would, would scold me if I didn't start out talking about uh, the co- that commonality. You and I are both graduates of U of D High. I think you graduated when I was in the eighth grade uh, yep. there. Uh, I, I want to start right there. Talk about growing up here in Detroit. Talk about U of D Jesuit and how it all influenced the the things that you were going to do later in life. Uh, well, you know, to take it way, way back, yeah, I, actually one of, one of my first poetry writing experiences uh, was uh, waking up and I wrote a, a poem about uh, the city of Detroit. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, writing, I woke up in the middle of, in the middle of the night and I scribbled it down. <laughs> and uh, and I, I remember, I believe I took it to Father Polo um, and he looked it over. I, I don't know what, I don't exactly remember what he said about it, but I remember I, I was probably one of my first cracks at revision. And then I, uh, later on, took that poem and uh, entered it into a, uh, a, a an AXO competition, the NAACP Academic Olympics competition. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was 18, just about to go to college at the University of Chicago, and I won a uh, the second prize. Huh. Uh, and Dudley Randall was actually one of the judges. I did not know Dudley <laughs> Randall at the time, but... Uh, it was uh, part of a little fuel that Detroit uh, gave me. So much of my inspiration came from being in this uh, wonderful city and uh, and seeing the 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 wonders of creativity from Detroit yeah. and taking that energy out into the world. So, so that's a, such an interesting story in the sense that you said you just woke up mm-hmm. and had this idea, but that the vehicle for you was poetry. Why, why do you think that was? You know, I'm not. I'm not really sure why. I you know, I actually wanted to go into journalism. Uh, and there's, but it seemed like there were just too many deadlines attached to it. Poems you can kind of let them sit and simmer for, you know, for twenty minutes or or twenty months, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, that seemed to be more suited to my timeline. Uh, but I also, I'm also a bit of a narrative poet. I like to tell stories. So I kind of do journalism from the past into the present. Yeah. And so, and I do it through poetry and poetry is a great vehicle for that. It fits in little tiny spaces. You can deliver it quickly, get in, get out and, and get into somebody's consciousness, you know, lay something down and then let them work with that. Yeah. So, so as I was saying in the open, you know, one of the things I love about poetry is the way that it, it sort of stands on the shoulders often of these other art forms. It kind of borrows from them. And when I'm reading your work, um, it's also vivid, uh, the other influences, music and rhythm, uh, this idea of even literature and and emotion. Um, I'm always curious for poets how you make sense of all of that in this other art form, right? You're taking from these others, you're borrowing uh, mm-hmm. elements of these others and creating something really new and really exciting. Well, you know, I think, I think uh, uh, another aspect of, uh, of this is a, a lot of research. I, I do a lot of research into the, the people that I write about. So I, I try my best to 
uh, understand as much as I can about the people that I write about, because I write about historical figures quite a bit. And uh, I, I, I figure I owe it to them to try and get their story as straight as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and through that, I also am learning about their art form. Uh, so in this book, Olio, there's musicians, there's uh, classical musicians, mm-hmm. there's, there's comedians, there's sculptures, sculptors, you know. Um, so it, it, it means when I'm researching them, I have to research about their, their craft. Yeah. And, and, and in doing so, I, bring, I try to bring some of the language of that many times into their, the poem and to try and see it from their perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, your first book, Lead Belly, yeah. is, a, is an historical work. Uh, it is about uh, a blues musician. Uh, tell me a little more about what made you interested in that musician and, and that work. Right. It's a, uh, Lead Belly is, uh, was the nickname for Hoodie Leadbetter. And uh, Mr. Leadbetter was born in Louisiana around the mid-1880s and uh, died in New York in 1949. Uh, knew about 500 songs off the top of his head. Went to prison twice. Once for, once for shooting a man over a woman. Once for stabbing a man over a song. Uh, sang his way out of prison once. Now, if that's not uh, a narrative <laughs> that's, that's worthy of poetry, I don't know what is. Know what is. <laughs> he also lies at the crux of uh, of uh, our nation's understanding of uh, folk music and blues. So uh, he's just—he was a fascinating individual who uh, who really believed in his art and used his art to change his life, and uh, that is a lot of what I was—I was really actually trying to do with my own art, yeah. with my own art form, and I, so I found a kind of commonality in, in studying his life very carefully and trying to uh, understand where he was coming from uh, in, in the early part of the 20th century. At the in the really early part of the twenty first century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said he sank his way out of prison. How yeah, do that? he. Uh, it's interesting story. Well, it didn't not not like he sank his way out of prison, but what happened was he uh, was in prison, and the governor of Texas liked to uh, bring his parties down <laughs> to to the. It's a true story. He used to like to bring parties down to the prison and have the prisoners entertain him and and at one point Lead Belly said I'm going to sing a song to the governor and ask for a, a pardon now he was called the king of the 12 string guitar for good reason he was extremely talented you can go folks I really urge you to go and look up his uh, his work but he was really just a a great guitarist and he did perform for the governor and the governor did give him an early release <laughs> because of the song yeah 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 oh, that's very cool uh, i'm talking with tyimba jess uh, he is a pulitzer prize winning poet and author of the book olio he's also a detroit native and will be one of the speakers at the midwest literary walk this weekend in chelsea one of my favorite events uh, every year we always get really great folks uh, to come from all over the world, really, to to be part of the literary walk. It's really great, also, to celebrate folks who are uh, our own, folks who are from here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, if you want to participate in the conversation, uh, have a conversation with Tyimba, uh, give us a call. Let us know what your knowledge is of poetry. What is your knowledge of American history or the Civil War period uh, up to World War One? Uh, how is your understanding? 
changed of that era over time. Also, if you're just a fan of poetry and want to talk about how it comes together and how it inspires you, uh, this is the time to do it. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, so, Diane, I want to talk about uh, Olio, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the book for which you won the Pulitzer Prize in uh, 2017. Uh, as I said, it focuses on America from the Civil War up to World War I. Uh, talk about your fascination with that time period? Well, you know, uh, after writing about Lead Belly, who was born in 1885, I, I really became curious about, well, who were, who were his musical influences? Who were, who were the black musicians creating music before, before the era of recording? Mm-hmm. So I started doing research, and, and uh, it was, you know, we were just doing amazing, fascinating things after the Civil War, like directly after the Civil War. Uh, and uh, there was, it, I started running across all these f- just f- amazing stories to me that, frankly, I wish I had learned. Uh, I felt like I should have learned them in grade school and high school. <laughs> and so I, uh, I felt an obligation in a certain kind of way and also really, frankly, an opportunity to bring them to the page as, 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 uh, as well as I could possibly uh, understand how to bring them to the page. So, uh, Olio means the middle part of a minstrel show mm-hmm. in which a, a group of acts come together uh, and create a variety show, so to speak. And in this book, there are a host of black creatives who are telling their story and uh, the backdrop of these black creatives trying to trying to create art through integrity is the is the shadow of the minstrel show which is uh is more or less a white supremacist uh um uh form of psychological warfare that was really the primary form of american entertainment throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries so they're they're kind of in a in a tussle so to speak with this with this with this uh, overarching art form, trying to uh, create their own art uh, in their own with their own their own impetus, their own their own vision inside it to es- is to escape the idea of caricature and and f- and fully realize their humanity. Yeah. So I mean, a lot of people might have been interested in that subject and. Just written a book, right? Uh, mm-hmm. a, a fiction uh, work mm-hmm. or or a nonfiction work. Tell me why this works for you as a collection of poems. Well, you know, first uh, I, I, that calls me to to bring a commercial for poetry, which is to <laughs> say that there is no good writing without poetry in it. Uh, <laughs> wow! And and uh, poetry is, is poetry is, has the ability to say the most with the least amount of words. Mm-hmm. And it's called economy compression, and it's it's so I I, I feel that I, I wanted to uh, to to bring to life their voices because they're mostly persona poems, meaning they're poems in the voice, in the of, voice of the in the imaginary voice voice of these people. So it's it's an attempt to bring when when you speak in first person, which is what these poems basically are. You you kind of bring the reader 
really back deep into that actual moment. And you, uh, you, you really start to, they start to come closer to understanding the positionality of the, of the uh, speaker. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Tayem Bajess. Also, have him read a little from his book, Olio. Also, get to you on the phones and on social. Uh, how do you use poetry in your life? Are you a poet? who is looking for a way to sort of explore that deeper, maybe just getting into it. Uh, How does poetry help you navigate the world? Is it something that you turn to in times where you need inspiration or support? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. We've got a really great guest right now. Tayem Bajest is a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet of the, and the author of the book Olio. He's also a Detroit native and is going to be a speaker at the Midwest Literary Walk this weekend in Chelsea. Uh, We're talking about his work. We're talking about growing up here in Detroit. We're talking about poetry and the role it plays in our lives, whether we're people who write poems or people who just enjoy them. Uh, We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know what role poetry plays in your life. Are you somebody who is a poet? Uh, So many poets here in Detroit, so many great poetry organizations really Mm. here in Detroit. Inside Out uh, Mm, is one of my favorites. And I always am so moved by the poems that the really young people Mm -hmm. uh, in that organization come up with. Uh, Call and let us know how how you make poetry fit, I guess, into your life and what it does for you, what role it does, what role it plays for you uh, in the world. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Time, I do want to have you read a little from from Olio, and the first poem I'd like to read is on page 15. It's called Blind Tom plays for Confederate Troops, 1863. You use and reference music, again, a lot in your poetry, and you seem to write, again, from these very first-person voices. Uh, So uh, I want to have you read and then talk a little about about Blind Tom and who he's meant to be. Right. Uh, Well, why not? Can I I talk about him first? Sure, you can talk about him Well, Blind Tom was born autistic, and blind uh, in about uh, 1849. He was born into slavery in Georgia. And uh, to, put it, to put it shortly, yeah, the family 
upon whose plantation he was born, the, the family that owned the plantation, the Bethune family, controlled him throughout his life uh, up until the Civil War and then past that, uh, really for his entire life. And uh, he, he had a, he was, had a uh, phonographic memory. He, was a, he became very popular throughout the, uh, the American South and around the world, really. Uh, and as a result, they made about a million dollars in profit wow. off of Blind Tom throughout his life. And this is uh, taken from a time when they took him around uh, playing for, well, exactly what the title says, Blind Tom Plays for Confederate Troops, 1863. The slave's hands dance free, unfettered, flying across ivory, feet stomping toward a crescendo that fills the forest pine, reminding the Rebs what they're fighting for, black captive labor. Tom, slick with sweat, shows a new trick. Back turned to his piano, he leans like a runner about to throw himself to freedom through forest bramble until he spreads his hands behind him. He hitches fingertips to keys, hauls Dixie slowly out of the battered upright's teeth like a work song, dragged across cotton fields. Like a plow, weighted and dirty, ringing with a slaver's songs at master's bidding. Wow. So even as you're reading that, I mean, I can hear the influences of music and rhythm in in the way that it's paced and phrased. That again, that overlap of of art forms, um, uh, and again, the vivid imagery of uh, of someone who certainly in his time was not thought to be. Uh, a full human being and yes. not given the dignity of voice. Uh, but here it's all about him. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's part of, uh, that's part of what we can, we can do in poetry and what, part of what's happening uh, in, in literature and also in the iconography of the, of the whole country. All, all over the country you see statues being replaced or, or, or taken down we're, to try and create a re-understanding of what our history is and what it means to us. And in literature, the same thing is happening. There's so many poets that are going back and excavating the past and trying to re-understand or, or come, come to uh, a, a, uh, a kind of a remix, so to speak, of what, our, what, what actually has happened in our history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little about process. Mm. Um, uh, so you discover this story about Blind Tom. Mm. Um, talk about the the path from that to to this amazing uh, poem that that gives him uh, uh, it gives him personage. It gives him this this idea of of life. Right. Well, this poem is a, is a sonnet. S-O-N-N-E-T. Mm-hmm. And it's actually part of a, a crown of sonnets that's in, in the book. It's one of several. Um, and it's actually, Blind Tom is a great, is, is really where the book started because he, he just 
posed an intriguing figure. Um, and he, he, here's this this man who's who's uh, blind, autistic, but extremely talented. has an, has an extreme talent that that blossoms on the keyboard, and he's he's he harnesses it in a certain way, in that his behavior uh, is is really is really kind of out of the ordinary. Like the family has to accommodate him in certain ways in order to get him to play, but at the same time, they take the fruits of his labor and really, Frank, and 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 profit from it tremendously. Such so there's so many contradictions happening in that mm-hmm. story, and mm-hmm. those contradictions, that tension is what makes for, you know, makes for just a, a kind of uh, uh, a, something that captivated me. And made me feel like it was something worthy of that, that I really need to, needed to understand it and come to a fresh understanding of it myself by writing it down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also write a letter to W. E. B. Du Bois uh, uh-huh. from the perspective of a made-up figure, yeah. Julius Monroe Trotter, and I wonder how much Du Bois' work influences your own, uh, given that this is the same. This is kind of the same era, right? Uh, he's right. in the same era as these figures that you're writing about. He is. Uh, du Bois, uh, I mean, his, his uh, influence on me is tremendous. Uh, and in, in the book, it's, there's, there's, there's several what I contrapuntal poems. In other words, there's poems where there's two poems that talk to each other that read, when you read from left to right, they read into each other. And sometimes when they, you read from right to left, they also read into each other. They read, read in different ways. So it's, they, they represent two different pers- personas in conversation with each other. And that is kind of playing off the idea of double consciousness in, uh, that uh, Du Bois uh, devised to, to more better understand the uh, the psychic reality of being African-American or being black in America where you have to, you have to exercise one kind of consciousness uh, on your job and then another kind of consciousness in your community. Um, so it's playing off of that. And, and, and Du Bois, you know, he was, he was the editor of Crisis Magazine, mm-hmm. NAACP's, um, uh, uh, which is still being published today. And it's NAACP's uh, 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 newsletter so to speak but he devised that as a kind of uh, a kind of tool of up- upliftment and uh, I want to I want to be in communication with that with that there's a guy an imaginary person who is really obsessed with the legacy of Scott Joplin and he's he's interviewing people around the country who knew Scott Joplin after he died and he's sending these interviews back to the Crisis magazine to have them have them published there uh, uh, <laughs> according to the book they they're lost and they're not found until very recently in the last I think 20, 2014 2015 and yeah. then all of a sudden they surface um, but it was. It, I wanted to be in communication, in, in, in communication, kind of psychically with the legacy of W. E. B. Du Bois, and Crisis Magazine, Double Consciousness, um, the and the kind of uh, intent of of uh, of further understanding 
you know, because, you know, without, without Crisis Magazine, you know, some of our most, uh, uh, some of the high, the, the uh, most prominent figures of the Harlem Renaissance. Right. Don't, were first published. They don't get an airing, right? It, uh, in Crisis Magazine, yeah, right? <laughs> you know, it was so where they could, it was where they could publish. Yes, yeah. yes. So you know, it was, it was a very criti- critical organ, uh, and uh, so I, I just kind of borrowed a little from W. B. Du Bois <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, and put it in there. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to run out of time, uh, unfortunately. And, of course, mm-hmm. I would love to sit here and talk to you all day. Uh, but I, I do want to talk just a little about uh, what you're working on now and what people will hear from you when uh, you appear at the Midwest Literary Walk. Uh, that is at uh, 1 p.m. on Saturday at the Main Street Church in uh, mm-hmm. Chelsea, Michigan. But uh, what's next for you? Well, you know, I'm working on, uh, I'm really interested in a, a, another kind of figure that came up in the book, The Legacy of uh, James Reese Europe, who is probably the one of the most important and also at the same time the least well-known sure. jazz figure of the 20th century. Uh, James Reese Europe led the, uh, the, the Hellfighters band uh, the, of the 369th, into battle and then uh, at the same time had them touring around France playing jazz mm-hmm. to uh, to Europeans for really the first time uh, in history uh, <laughs> so he kind of he, he also was responsible for building a kind of musicians union called the Clef Club uh, so he was a little bit like a Philip Randolph <laughs> and um, uh, and Duke Ellington Combined, uh, but he w- he died tragically ve- right after World War One, more or less. Yeah. And you're and you're gonna write a book about him? Or? I am. I'm interested in him, and I'm also interested in Black Seminoles, yeah. who are who are really that's fascinating. That's that's yeah. really basically a story of the of an entire nation of Black folks living in the swamps of Florida, who were entirely. Uh, entirely independent lived with with the you know, traded with the with the Seminole nation fought three separate wars yeah. against the British and the United States had a treaty moved out to Oklahoma then moved down to Mexico and that's that's just I mean come yeah on. <laughs> no I know it's a it's it's a it's an incredible story and it, it really has is. not been it's not been properly told in nah. too many instances no nah. so. all right well Tyan Bajess is really really wonderful to have you here on Detroit Today. And uh, again, you can see Tayemba on Saturday, April 22nd at 1 p.m. at the Main Street Church in Chelsea, Michigan during the Midwest uh, Literary Walk. Thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us. Come back. We're going to talk a little about the political consequences of the Dominion lawsuit settlement with Fox News. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.